0: Welcome to Offbook, a podcast from The Young Thing, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. Mm. Hello, my name is Daniel, and today I am joined by... Bollahan Obisison. Hi, Bollahan. Thanks for coming in.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) You're very welcome. Um, The first question I've got for you is, tell me all about growing up. Where was that? (laughs) Who was it with? What was it like? In that order.
1: Great. Um, So... I was born in... Nigeria and a city called Ibadan which uh, is sort of northwest of Lagos because that's geographically the place that I think everyone sort of references when they think about Nigeria and um, yeah I grew up with my mum and dad but they were rarely around because um, my dad worked as an accountant in a different state and my mum was um, at a time um, in Saudi Arabia nursing and um, so I kind of grew up um, with a lot of my extended family, so my grandparents and my uncles and and just was a mischievous child <laughs> <laughs> running around in my pants in the rain and you know growing you know corn. Sort of um, fields, and you know, in any sort of patch of grass that I could find, and going crab hunting, and, and yeah, stuff like that stuff that you know, normal sort of was it fun? Eight years, <laughs> yeah, it was great, <laughs> it was brilliant, it was brilliant. And then, um, and then, um, we had a bit of a, a tragedy in the family, so then, um, by that time, my mum was working in London. And she wanted uh, kids with her. So um, my sisters and I moved to Bermondsey in South East London. And yeah, and kind of grew up predominantly around there. That must have been quite a shock, quite a culture shock to
0: move from Nigeria to Bermondsey. Yeah, it was
1: so strange. You know, everyone started smiling at you for no reason. (laughs) I was just like, what the hell is this place? And it was a bit cold as well, yeah. so... And no corn and crab hunting. No corn or crab hunting. But there were, like, horses on meadows and all, like, you know... <laughs> what, in, in Bermansey? Yeah, in Bermondsey. <laughs> <laughs> on the old, like, basically, where the old... Um, where the new den is, mm. um, was a derelict sort of wasteland of um, grass. And there was um, a, a very large traveller community that lived nearby. And they were just kind of, like go and park their horses on the grass and and then you know up until that point i think i'd never i've never seen a horse in real life to be honest i don't think so um i've seen all other sort of animals but never horses um and so it was quite you know a complete contrast Mm -hmm. to the urban sort of environment that i was thrusted into Mm -hmm. to then be seeing horses on on fields and stuff like that. Well, that's really
0: interesting then. So when you were in Nigeria, what was your image of the UK, of London? And did it fulfil that image? Mate, it
1: was it was uh, James Bond. It was <laughs> literally James Bond, men in suits and bowler hats. Yeah. I don't even know what the women looked like. <laughs> or uh, what the horses looked like. oh the, the horses. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was... That was, yeah, that was pretty much it. And then, obviously, you know, when you... But yeah Bermondsey was not that at all, you mm. know, so you know there was a lot to get used to mm.
0: and quite a large black population in Bermondsey, but not necessarily from nigeria how did that how did you respond to that
1: um it was it was difficult it was tough because you know there was a lot of um you know i think the the black population or um, community in in the u k is still going through a very um kind of transitional sort of state in terms of acknowledging a, you know, a a kind of shared community and a shared identity between us rather than sort of ethnic or cultural um, divisions and stuff like that, which meant that, you know, growing up in Bermondsey, um, going to school, um, a lot of the young black West Indian children that I saw as, you know, friends and, um, you know, brothers and sisters and, um, you know, immediately uh, gravitated towards didn't necessarily feel the same way about me. And, mm. you know, I you know I suffered racial abuse from black kids as much as I suffered really? racial abuse from white kids as well. So it was, yeah, it was an interesting time. And, you know, at that time it really... Um, really confronts your uh sense of identity mm. and 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 that sense of cultural belonging and and sort of you know what what is the balance between um sort of conforming assimilation and you know retaining a strong sense of integrity which meant my cultural identity because i think you know there's a huge swade of young men and women of my generation who um, probably chose to um, abandon uh, or not embrace their kind of African identity as much as they should have done um, because there was no sort of value placed on it uh, by the environment that they were growing up in you know, and occasionally um, more so from the black sort of um, West Indian community at the time but now that's completely changed that's different you know Afrobeat is everywhere <laughs> everyone's eating you know each other's foods and stuff like that and you know there's <clears throat> also a real Afrocentric um, kind of mentality that a lot of people are exploring and really um taking ownership of you know so what advice
0: and, and guidance did your mum and your siblings and your your Nigerian community give you when you were a n- 9 years old in bermondsey did they say you know keep that identity keep that nigerianness or you know become assimilated almost for want of a better word into into london and british culture identity
1: um it's, i mean i i think as much as I'd like to think I grew up in a very Nigerian household, I, um, you know, the community was um, perhaps more centered around uh, religious activities as much as also cultural gatherings and special occasions and stuff like that. So, you know, we went to a quote-unquote black church, but then, and then kind of, I didn't kind of grow up through that. Went to the local Anglican because it was close up you know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> that sort of changes things, <laughs> and it's a lot, you know, it's a lot more restrained and uh, and and very sort of um. And what response did you get from the local Anglican church? I mean, that was great, you know, they it was it was um, you know, I I, I was an altar boy after about four, oh, really? four years of growing, yeah, I was an altar boy. Um, and, you know, and it was just, it, I think there is a, a real, um, v- there's a value in it, hence why it's such a strong, has a strong sort of position and place within the black community, and that, uh, you know, there's a real tradition and a real sort of um, sense of order about um, uh, religious worship and certain kind of routine behavior that you know is and also obviously you've got the really strong sort of um doctrine behind it and you know <laughs> you know rules and regulations of you know doubts uh, are not <laughs> and stuff like that and which meant that to a certain extent a lot of um African families you know West African or just across the continent really kind of in some ways, obviously, off the back of you know um, colonialism, mm. held on to you know um, the Christian um, kind of uh, religion and 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 and, and behaviours and stuff like that because it, it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a form of um, conditioning, I guess. Um, but you know, to go back to um, the previous question, I think in terms of just. Holding on to my Nigerian heritage and and stuff like that. I think it was it was at home. My mum and my dad, when he eventually arrived from Nigeria, just spoke Yoruba to each other all the time. And but you know, and and at that time, you know as much as Nollywood is a huge thing and, like, a lot of people would know, about it it wasn't like we watched Nollywood films every day, you know. Which, Nigerian Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Um, we... Which are, like, soap operas and and, and, and sort of uh, m- morality t- tales and stuff like that, which is, you know, they have so much value and, and people are, you know... There are some people who know those films back to back i could not name you one (laughs) apart from um uh mr ibu what happens in that he's a comedian he's just like he's like the mr bean of you know nigeria and he kind of goes around on journeys he's like this slightly rotund black guy who you know um speaks (laughs) but you know just gets into loads of um, scrapes and and mishaps and stuff like that which is uh, great yeah no it's hilarious <laughs> it's hilarious mr is hilarious um and <clears throat> but yeah so we didn't necessarily indulge in you know nollywood films too much at home and stuff like that um uh, and it was just more kind of just being fed by you know what the average british um you know a city family would um, be fed by and influenced by and, you know, without being too culturally specific or ethnically specific and say, oh, you know, this is, you know, obviously there were like shows like The Real McCoys and stuff like that that, you know, and Desmond's that, you know, we couldn't get enough of and stuff like that, but for the most part, you know, I was growing up quite British, but hearing Yoruba um, spoken in the home and just kind of holding on to that as much as possible. And and also knowing that I was African, so there were certain things that, you know, um, my parents would not abide, and me kind of going off the rails was <laughs> one of those. Mm-hmm. So there was no... And there was a strong emphasis on education and um, and just really kind of um, persevering, you know, and, and, and making sure that, You know, as much as um, certain situations outside the home were difficult not to be distracted uh, or um, completely consumed by that.
0: Well, did you ever go off the rails? Were you naughty? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) But so hearing your story so far, nothing in it yet is uh, sticking out as being and therefore I went into theatre. No. So what was the first thing then, the first step which made you think actually... There's stories I want to tell, and there's ways I want to tell them, and so I'm going to look into being in
1: theatre. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a long journey, and everyone has their own sort of roots into theatre and stuff like that, but I was just a real fan of films. I grew up on a lot of Bollywood films, which are innately, incredibly theatrical, Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of Hollywood films as well. Um, Some some Nollywood films... um, but not that many. And there was like, you know, um, kind of actors like Baba Salah, who's like a, another Nigerian comedian, um, but kind of ve- later on veering into um, sort of more dramatic sort of dramas and stuff like that, who I kind of watched. And, um, and a lot of um, uh, chaplain, uh, oh really? Chaplin, yeah, 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 and um, and yeah, so all of those sort of things, I think. It sounds like, a lot of comedy so Were you a funny child? Were you I, someone that wanted to be a comedian? I I think somehow, yeah. I think you know, I yeah, I had that. I had a bit of a funny bone in me, um, and um, yeah, but I don't think I wanted to be an outright, you know, stand up on stage, you know, tell jokes comedian, and I was never that in class either i think there was probably one month um throughout my whole school year where um one of the girls uh meron i think her name was was like oh you're quite funny <laughs> and i was like i'm quite funny <laughs> and so was like i then thought oh, i can be funny how mm. can i be funny and i thought oh being funny is hard work and it you know in a, you know institutional environment like school it just often gets you in trouble mm. so try not to be funny um and so i avoided that for a while or kind of you know um knew when to discreetly try to amuse people mm. in the class and stuff like that um but um then I, yeah at, um, at primary school, I was in a play, um, George and the Dragon. Um, I think I played the dragon. <laughs> 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 and, and a soldier or mm. something like that, um, which I wasn't very happy with. Why not? I was like, I can be a better George. What's yeah. this? It's a small part, actually, for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that, I think that was my first sort of... Uh, kind of theatre experience in a way because you know I don't remember going to the theatre or seeing any sort of performances in Nigeria mm-hmm. at all um, and then even then that just you know that just went away you know I, w- I left primary school went to secondary school and um, and it was only at my secondary school which was around the corner from the young Vic or on the old where my drama teacher was the first drama teacher they've had in the school for like 10 years or something. And he had, you know, he had trained with the National Youth Theatre and stuff like that. And he was just this guy who was really enthusiastic to share, you know, um, his kind of, you know, his own kind of passion with a a young group of inner city kids. And, um, And, yeah, I just, I literally threw myself into it and... It seemed as if I had a natural um, aptitude for performance, really. And um, So how did you find out about the National Youth Theatre, which was your next step? Yeah, he... So, you know, Peter, um, my drama teacher, was um, a member of the National Youth Theatre, and he was the one... After we'd done, like, uh, uh, our day out, I think, and we wrote an, a play... Um, uh, called Clinton at the club. I played Clinton, obviously, <laughs> um, or something like that. Um, and then, yeah, some other plays we did. Um, it was kind of like I think, I think you're you're an actor, or you certainly would benefit from going to the National Youth Theatre to train with other young people who take acting seriously, or who are the most talented young actors from across the country. And how many other black children were there at NYT? Oh, at NYT, at the time, when I did my course, there was um, me, Matthew, and Funlola, I think. And was that an issue or irrelevant? um i think there was enough of us on the course and we all had <laughs> we we all had we all came from similar background um which meant that it wasn't too much of an issue but then also we knew that we were somehow culturally uh informed differently to the rest of the group because you know i've got friends from like cheshire and like newcastle and you know manchester and all these other places that you know, I didn't necessarily have a a reference for. You know, um, so it was quite nice to kind of just, um, yeah, sh- share stories with each other and 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 um, you know get drunk. I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what did your parents think when you joined NYT? Were I they mean, on
1: board? I, yeah, they were they were kind of just for it really because you know it was just. It was a vocational activity. It was just kind of like a hobby, you know? Mm. Um, uh, apart from when it was like, oh, it's starting to cost money. Um, and then that's when the church, the Anglican church, <laughs> sponsored me. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, To be able to go to the nice Day Youth Theatre a couple of times, which is, yeah, like completely unexpected. Yeah. Um, uh, see, but, it was, all but, that altar boy work paid off, didn't it? It, it. <laughs> it did pay off, mate. It did pay off. Um, and they missed me, but, you know, I often invited them to see shows and mm. stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, so I, I literally kind of just threw myself into that, did that Um, for something like five consecutive summers, you know. Once I got in, I would then go into the library, find a monologue, learn it, like, you know, direct myself and then go and audition and i will get into, you know, a production and stuff like that. So I kind of steadily um, grew in parts in in the National Youth Theatre. But
0: at this stage, you are acting, and that's not what we know you to be today. So how did that transition come about from you as a performer to you... Um,
1: being a writer and a director? So, again, through the National Youth Theatre, they um, started up a thing called Short Nights, um, which is basically an initiative to encourage current members and ex-members to write plays. So I was like, yeah, I could do that. (laughs) Um, And so I wrote a play um, called uh, Roadside, which is about a young guy who is going to an anti-war march to sell um, weed, <laughs> and gets into a bit of a fracas and um, and kind of physically assaults um, someone, and in in trying to get away from the situation he. Um, he's tracked on CCTV and then caught. And when the police asked him well, what made him do it, he said, God made me do it. And so he's sectioned and it's about, you know, just kind of yeah, the pressures of um, society and how um, young black men are trying to define themselves against a society that is, it feels innately um, Built to um, uh, contain and uh, and and sort of inhibit them from any sort of kind of capital um, mm. progression or even uh, having a sense of worth uh, worth within the society that they've kind of grown up in. Um, And so, yeah, I wrote that play and I wrote a 15-minute version of it initially. So that was your first
0: play, yeah?
1: Yeah, and then um, the National Youth Theatre was like, oh, this is great. Um, Can you write a bit more? Can you make it about 50 minutes? And I was like okay (laughs) so i did and then i directed it because i told them i was the only one that could and they let me and paid me for it and i was like this is brilliant and it was in that room that i was kind of like oh even though i'd been an acting member i'd clearly not been paying too much attention to the role of the director because (laughs) i'm sort of running out of ideas i don't know exactly what those exercises are or how to technically um, communicate an idea or or um, improvise around some of the themes uh, as much as also what are those kind of theoretical um, practices that I could draw on to help the actors unlock the characters as much as also um, what the pursuit of the play is. And so, I decided to look for the opportunities to um, broaden my horizon and, and knowledge as a director and um, found the young vet we <laughs> were running an introduction to directing course. And so I applied and got onto that and, and then um, did an advanced introduction to directing course and then um, also applied to do a master class, um, which is when David and Lan, Lan is, um, I guess, sort of uh, facilitating that. And he invites a few other um, sort of reputable directors to come in. And one of those was Richard Wilson. And Richard Wilson was just about to direct a play <coughs> um, called The Astronaut Wives for the National Youth Theatre. Um, and and I was like that's brilliant I'm, I've got connection with the National Youth Theatre I should ask them if I could re- assist Richard Wilson wow. and so um, I agonised over it for a while but then eventually did ask and they said oh, um, let's look into it mm. because we hadn't planned or budgeted for an assistant director and, um, and so they were like yeah I think we've got money for that um, yeah you can do that I was like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. I'm going to be in a room with Richard and learning from Richard. And um, and and I did. I learned that's a great crazy. deal um, from him. And um,
0: Well, that sounds really great because it sounds like you seize an opportunity there by being a little bit brazen, by, by grabbing something that wasn't necessarily there to begin with. Yeah. Is that something that you found and that's a way that sort of helped you
1: progress in your career? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think that's something... I think... To a certain extent, I think I'm so you know, I have a few sort of negative but also slightly positive traits and that I can be extremely gullible and <laughs> and naive. And and so in that I just kind of don't um it, it means that I'm not I'm not uh preventing myself from being in the moment mm-hmm. in a way so you know as soon as I sort of thought there is a possibility here why not explore that possibility and see where it leads if they said no uh, I'll probably have asked if I can just like pop in and observe <laughs> <laughs> you know rehearsals and stuff like that but um, I was kind of like I think I think there's an option here and, and let me let me see where it leads and, and, yeah, it's in a in a roundabout way to lead me here, which is...
0: So would that be a piece of advice to give
1: emerging directors then, which is to just ask, mm-hmm. just go for it? Mate, any, any opportunity you see, or even if you're not sure if there's an opportunity there, but, you know, as long as you're kind of brave enough to, like, ask or even reach out to be seen, mm-hmm. then, you know then pursue that, see where it leads, see where it takes you.
0: You mentioned Introduction to Directing, which is how you got your first sort of foot in the door. Mm. You are now looking after that uh, because it's still happening at the Young Vic. You are the director looking after the young directors on the Introduction to Directing course. Does that come with a sense of sort of responsibility then because you know how good it can be in terms of creating
1: a launchpad? Yeah, yeah, and I just want them to remember it, you know. Mm. I want them to be like, oh, I really learned a lot on that course from Boland yeah yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) exactly or Bolan, (laughs) but you know I really learned a lot and you know I want to look back on in 10 years time or whenever and just know that at least five of them are working professionally as directors you know that's what I would love to see because you know I think just trying to think I'm I'm probably the only one of the course, the initial course that I did, who's, you know, a director. Um, But from the group that I've recently worked with, I think they're all immensely talented and have so much potential and have a a real self-assurance about the way they view the world in a very kind of analytical, political, and, you know, compassionate way. That That is also artistically fed in a way that, you know, they just want to respond to it for other people who aren't necessarily um, artistically inclined to be able to view the world um, through a, a, a critical but, you know, um, uh, artistic and entertaining, you know, medium in in, in that it's fair. And thinking about you
0: now, so you went from actor to uh, writer first and then director. Mm -hmm. When you direct somebody's work, does you as a writer um, inform uh, that piece? And equally, when uh, somebody directs your work, your writing, um, how does that make you feel, knowing that you are also a director?
1: Yeah, I think um, when I do direct people's work, I think... um, especially new work um, being a writer, I, I have to yeah, I sort of park it a little bit, but can't help you know my sort of innate instincts in, in reading um, mm-hmm. dialogue and, and feeling like oh that's that's slightly overwritten or mm-hmm. that's a gag or um, you know that. That section needs more explaining. But what's your job in that situation then? Can you be a backseat driver or do you, do you just go with it or what? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're putting on a different hat because, you know, essentially, as a writer, you're, you're creating the world. You're sort of creating the, uh, the voices of the character. But then um, as a director in that situation who has um, sort of writing background, you then take on the role of dramaturg in a way. Um, as much as also you, I guess your own taste and perhaps even style um, st- tries to um, uh, influence exactly how you read in the line and stuff like that. So you have to be careful that you're not trying to um, shoehorn your voice into, um, you know, someone else's. Um, piece of work um so is that difficult does that sometimes accidentally happen no i i i, I wouldn't say it's it's ever happened for me um on uh, yeah I wouldn't, uh, yeah, uh, hopefully, hopefully no one gets <laughs> no one gets back to you and be like, oh, well, I worked with him. <laughs>
0: and just looking at some of those uh, plays that you've written or or helped to write, so Feast, which was on at the Young Vic uh, in 2013, Mad About the Boy, which was also on at the Young Vic, Pigeon English, Hold It Up. What spurs you to, to write these plays? Do you have to be in a particular mood? Do you have to sense a, a feeling in the, in the country or the city? Do you have to be in a certain place
1: uh, mentally? Why... Why do you put pen to paper? Um, I think recently I've been kind of reflecting on, you know, the pieces that I've written, and I think a lot of them have something to do with identity. And I think that's, you know, a kind of... a a post-colonial um, sort of immigrant identity as much as also the identity of, um, uh, you know... <clears throat> Social, social class, and 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 social status in relation to the society that we live in, and 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 I'm primarily motivated by wanting to respond to, you know, the society and environment that I live in, and the uh, sort of feeling, or even um, the knowledge of the anxieties that people carry around um as well as drawing on my own experiences of how i felt at a certain age or um you know how i felt recently about a particular issue or um an idea that is sort of floating around that a lot of um, people might be sort of um, latching onto um as has been um you know quite profoundly true you know so um you know Sorry. i try to kind of dissect that and and uh, and really sort of confront some of those ideas so how
0: would you sum up the uh, environment that we and society that we live in oh mate <laughs> <laughs> what's going on
1: i don't know it's crazy it really is it really is and i think does it make you want to write more Yes, it does. It does want, make me want to write more. And I think there's something brilliantly satirical about what's happening with the Labour Party at the moment. And so, yeah, I think that's probably something I would explore. But then also there's also the, the xenophobia that is on the rise. And, and it's kind of like, you know, it's, a <clears throat> it's sort of this latent nationalist sort of um, ideology that hasn't benefited anyone across um, the history of civilization. You know, it's just it, it, all it all it breeds is hatred and barbarism. You know, and it's it's a really toxic time we're living in. And do you think we're
0: going to see a lot of new writing
1: about this toxic time? I I I guarantee you, <laughs> every every writer has their radio on. <laughs> they've got another TV in the front room on, and they're sitting down, just you know, YouTubing like ridiculous stuff that's online at the moment, and just going right. I need to find. I need to like narrow all of this down into something that is is digestible for audiences as much as people are then going to be writing some, you know, epic sweeping um, play about the the formation of the European Union, (laughs) it's going to be crazy, it's going to be, you know, creatively fertile. So that's the plays that you write, but what about the plays that you direct?
0: Because from what I can see, they are also about um, identity and racism and issues like that. For instance, Sus, which you directed at the Young Vic by Barry Keefe, is a play about the you know the very racist stop-and-search laws under Thatcher's uh, Britain. Yeah. So things like that, do that, that makes you want to direct a play, does it? Yeah,
1: I think it's, 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 it's about, you know, um, connecting with some of those themes as much as also being able to kind of... Um, Place yourself at the center of the argument, and you know, Suss is a great example of that, written by Barry Keith, one of the greatest um, sort of under, under un, un, underrepresented and underappreciated British playwrights, and and so that play, you know, when I sort of found it. You know, and I had huge help from friends who knew of the play um, and, and kind of recommend I, f- I go and, like, seek it out. It was out of print. And, and I think at the time, I didn't necessarily know how to, uh, you know, contact agents and stuff like that to get a copy of the play. Or it might have been arriving to me quite late. So I literally went to the London Library, um, I think, and... And I just found it, you know, there. And as soon as I started reading it, I was just like, wow, Mm. this play is, you know, and this was um, round about 2009 when we first, or 2008, 2008, when um, the general election was creeping up. And at the time, there was a conversation about the fact that, you know, it was, we were probably veering towards a conservative government and and it was going to be overwhelmingly so after the debacle of the Iraq war Mm. and everything. Um, So it was, you know, that play was just so pertinent and obviously there was also loads of conversations about reviewing the SUS laws as well, uh, which was um, stop and search Mm. laws at the time and the fact that that was indiscriminately used against... um, Mainly young black and Asian men um, in 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 cities across the country, um, and so that just you know that was a play that spoke to me at the time, and I I I just I just couldn't stop putting I I literally couldn't stop reading it as um, and put it down when when I found it and and so I and and i have to say this that still did not um mean that in directing the play mm. in actually working with the actors i was um somehow had a subconscious bias towards the character of the black man in mm. the room i still wanted to make the production somehow balanced and profoundly um you know uh, potent for anyone in the room as much as you know, some audience members would have probably sat there and thought what Khan was saying at any particular point was um, incredibly, you know, um, persuasive. The white police officer. Yeah, yeah. And he had the, you know, uh, (laughs) the sort of strongest, um, slightly um, uh, subversive uh, racist attitudes Mm -hmm. within the play as well. So, you know, it's... um, racist sexist <laughs> and yeah very kind of misogynistic attitudes in the play and um so yeah I was I, and that's that's the way I am with everything just because I think I've you know I've been in those situations where I've seen favoritism and I and I've gone you know there's no equality in that you know mm-hmm. there is no quality as much as you know um you know the 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 result of the referendum isn't necessarily a result that um, a lot of people wanted to hear or or want to come to terms with or even um, uh, uh, feel, you know it certainly Phil is um, misguided and, and misinformed in a way but it's it's arrived and it's it's something that, to a certain extent we just got to accept and and let play out in the way that means that we're not dismissing the the voice of of those people or the opinions of those people that have voted out and and obviously it's it's a it's a it's 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 left the country in a in a in a kind of precarious position, where we don't know, you know, we don't know the future, we don't know how. But
0: how do we respond to those angry voices, predominantly outside of London, uh, in the rest of England, not in in Scotland? But how do we respond to to that anger, that that sort of notion that nobody is listening to each other? What role for theatre or the arts to maybe kind of work to heal? Uh, this rift,
1: which is present in the UK currently, I think I think there is, you know, exactly what you just said. If 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 a playwright decides to, um, to write a play where the central message is the fact that no one's listening to each other, you know, I think that would would probably um, have a profound effect on people, and and whether there's a, you know, I. I Uh, whether there's a a kind of a a, a complete sort of um, epiphany Mm. um, uh, from that experience, from audience members who felt like they haven't been listened to and who feel like because they haven't been listened to is why they've... um, reacted uh, so kind of uh, strongly in a, in opposition uh, to their integrity as much as also um, their kind of value of their neighbor you know um, i think yeah if if that feels if that has a positive effect on on re Realigning those sort of thoughts and ideas, and um, to uh, to be more empathetic as much as also a bit more kind of uh, politically aware, um, mm. then I think that could be a great thing. It'd be difficult, though. It will be extremely difficult because you know people are stubborn. <laughs> hum- human beings are innately stubborn, and I think we all we all feel we're right and we're you know we're yeah we. We have a right to our opinions, and and people say phrases like "let's agree to disagree." How helpful is that? <laughs> you know,
0: Bolhan, I've got to ask you about um, diversity in the arts because you um, have been, uh, you know, vocal in being part of the uh, Black Lives Black Words um, program at the Bush Theatre. You're part of the Artistic Directors of the Future uh, program. You've been present at Act for Change. Uh, events, do you see yourself bearing in mind you are a high profile uh, black director and and writer as a a beacon for others or is that annoying, you just want to be you, do you have any responsibility to pave the way for for the next generation yes Okay. next (laughs) question
1: (laughs) no I do in the same way that others have done that for me You know, who did it for you um, (sighs) I the generations of, of Michael Buffon, Andrew Ruby-Singham, uh, Debbie Walton, uh, you know, Debbie Tucker-Green, um, you know, and, and before them, the Derek Walcott, the, uh, it's struggling now. And, and that's a problem. The struggle is the mm-hmm. problem because if we don't see ourselves um, represented and reflected mm-hmm. in the society that we live in, in the you know ecology of uh, of um the art sphere that we work in then then we start to question whether we belong or whether we are valued for what we have to contribute and and it's important that you know we you know we see ourselves reflected in 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 a myriad of 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 various different guises you know not just as the auteurs of the story but as, um, you know, uh, kind of s- stable, um, you know, uh, kind of, yeah, h- workers. You know. And it's linked to the
0: previous point, isn't it? That how do we, how does theatre speak to uh, the disenfranchised by having the disenfranchised uh, on, on our stages, in our theatres, writing our plays, directing our plays, producing
1: our plays? Yeah, completely, completely. And I think that's it, that's when... That's when the balance will be redressed because all of those people have brilliant minds. They have uh, alternative perspectives on things um, that isn't based on, you know, the unconscious biases that have, you know, persisted to, you know, to permeate exactly what we're, um, being told is, um, you know, is of cultural value or is entertaining or who can make those works, you know? So um, it's, yeah, it's incredibly important that the the industry, theatre, film, TV, you know, society in general needs to be a bit more diversified and also just that real kind of, um, you know, uh, a real a real representation of 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 the various different roles of leadership within all those um, different um, sectors and spheres of um, of interactions you know because on a daily basis we interact with one another whether in the shop or you know we get on the buses or or even uh, you know, through our sexual partners or who who we you know who we're attracted to, uh, and 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 things like that, and and that's you know if we kind of responded more to those things, um, and 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 pursued a, a much more honest representation of of the human species, then I think you know we'll be in a better place overall. Mm. Ohan, talk to me about cutting it. How's that going? What's going on there? It's it's gone well. It's gone well. It's a it's a really brilliant play written by Charlene James and and I think when I first read it I was just like this is so beautifully crafted and I want to do this <laughs> I really did um, and and you know Charlene's an old friend because she was a National Youth Theatre member and we were both in a play called. Uh, Arbitrary Adventures of a, an Accidental Terrorist. <laughs> um, and we didn't have any scenes together, but we are both in the same play. Um, and, and yeah, we've worked together with the National Youth Theatre on various other projects and stuff like that. But I think... And she'd only mentioned in passing, in the past, to me, that she was exploring and writing. So when um, I think she was shortlisted for the Alfred Fagan... I asked her to send me the play for me to read, and she sent it to me, and I immediately was so kind of um, taken by the depiction of these two uh, very distinctively and ideologically um, different girls, but culturally... Um, because the is
0: about two 15-year-old
1: Somali girls who um and their experiences of female genital mutilation yeah yeah so it's, it it was i was just kind of like i was just taken by it and and um and so yeah cut a long story short i became genesis fellow here at the Young Vic, and the play was already um in the process of being co-produced by the Young Vic and um the royal court when Charlene was also in the process of meeting different directors from the buildings that were um, part of that partnership of producing the play. Oh, so who who is producing it? So it's um, Young Vic, Royal Court, Birmingham Rep, Sheffield Crucible, and the Yard. Um, in Hackney. In yeah. Hackney, and so uh, yeah, she she was meeting everyone from all those buildings. And I met her. I expressed how much, you know, I loved the play and what I think, I, uh, what I thought I wanted to do the play and how I want to kind of, uh, I wanted to realize it uh, theatrically, on stage. Um, but then I also said to her, "We're friends. We're mates, <laughs> and you know, I will not be offended if you." decide to go with someone else i just want you to know that because i don't want you to feel like because of that familiarity um that uh, i was somehow at the top of the running to direct the play in any way shape or form so yeah she was kind of like a little bit <laughs> is that difficult to work with friends on a creative project um i've done it a couple of times and and it's fine it really is. It's fine. I think the hardest bit is when um you know, you kind of um have you know, you yeah, there's a bit of a, a, a conflict of interest in terms of ideas mm. and um and and it's about navigating how to professionally have that conversation without compromising your friendship, you know? Um and that's you know, that's the that's the hardest bit and it might be a thing where um you know you don't speak to each other for a couple of months (laughs) and then (laughs) and then you know you decide to go for a drink or bump into each other apart and just go oh you know that thing that happens it was really stupid that um yeah we let that you know come between us and let's carry on as we were before sort of thing so yeah, it's, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I think some, you know, if I, if, if I quietly hold a friend in high esteem, then I want to be um, very careful about what I invite them to work with me on, um, rather than just kind of, you know, exploiting mm. that friendship yeah. by, you know, over, <laughs> yeah, yeah. projects out the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. being uh, too eager and over, you know. Um, you know over yeah just kind of overindulging in 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 what they have to offer as much as also knowing that they're incredibly brilliant but really um yeah it's because we're friends it makes it easier to um have shortcuts in terms mm-hmm. of uh, kind of creative pursuits as well potentially not always but potentially and also you know in most cases i think friends will be incredibly supportive and um and therefore encouraging in a room with other artists as well um to kind of get on board and what's the audience response been to cutting it you pleased yeah no it's um i think yeah the critical response has been um so overwhelming in that it's been Mm. so good um and even better is um the audience being so emotionally um, taken by the production, and and the, and the voices of these two girls that Charlene has beautifully crafted, um, that you know people, are, you know I'm hearing of people sobbing <laughs> and stuff like that, um, and and just kind of leaving the theatre wanting to know how to um, contribute to um, the efforts to end FGM. Which I think is a real, yeah, the strongest mm-hmm. kind of um, compliment to what the what the what the piece and the production is achieved.
0: Really. And that's when theatre is at its most powerful, isn't it? When audiences leave feeling empowered to do something, to change something, to yeah. make something happen. Completely, completely. Yeah. And so, what's your next project? What next for you? What do you want to do? Um. Yeah. I'll, I'll it's, it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, Sam. thank you very much for coming in to chat this afternoon. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.